Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. So, things have been going pretty well on my end. You know, I've been really thinking a lot about what this podcast is about, what Cadence is about, and, you know, kind of in a large way, what I'm about. You know, I'm 46 years old now. I've got a daughter who's almost three. I'm leading this company, but I'm also in this place where I, you know, I've got a lot of big life changes going on. I've got parents who I'm becoming increasingly more responsible for. So for those of you who know me personally, I've got uh, one of my parents lives with dementia and we've recently moved them into a home and that's been a big challenge. And that also means that my other parent is living with me and, you know, I'm kind of moving from this space of being someone who's kind of this guy that traveled around, played music, you know, had a professional career to someone whose main job is being a parent and a son that's responsible for the health of his of his parents and then also a business owner and a good partner and the last thing i get to do is really think about myself and think about play and taking care of myself and it's been a real interesting shift but there's a lot of cool things i don't know that I'm, I'm in a place in my life where i'm really realizing like how happy i am to be able to be a great dad and be a great son and be a great partner to build up a company that I think is cool and, and hopefully be a great boss. And in that space, there's like a real sense of like, yeah, like, you know, I feel good. Like I actually feel quite good that I can do this. And there's always this little question mark of like, okay, well, how long can you do this? What is it going to take for you to keep on your feet and really feel good about your day to day? And that brings us to what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to be discussing the power of play and how play works in our lives as adults to really keep us on our feet and maybe not just even on our feet increases our ability to do the next right thing take that next right step and also to not fall over when we get too many headwinds so with that we're talking to jamie boucher jamie has worked in the play industry for nearly a decade you know, she's been involved in producing toys games and jigsaw puzzles for children and adults and she's promoted each of these things that she's been involved in at live events and conventions across the United States. She's a former educator and self-described play advocate. So like she can really speak about this really well. She loves introducing new people to tabletop gaming and is passionate about breaking down accessibility barriers and fostering a safe and inclusive community. This conversation really touches on all of that. And in a way that is just, if you're not familiar with tabletop gaming, it's super easy to get into this conversation and might maybe reawaken in you some of those ideas about things you love to do as a kid that maybe you can start getting involved in again. So before we get into this episode, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step beyond. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Jamie, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so this is a real cool conversation. And I want to start off with, you know, as we were getting ready for this and Patrick told me like, hey, this is where we want to lead with. I can't wait for your answer. What exactly is play? Yeah, so if you think about how do we define play, it's, it's kind of this really large concept that everyone knows inherently like, yeah, this is play, but when you try to put a definition on it, it can be hard. So the easiest way to define it is some sort of activity, some sort of experience that you do only because it brings you pleasure. So you're not getting any sort of tangible outcome. You're not doing it because you have to. It's You're doing it because it brings you joy. Mm -hmm. And so that can manifest in a lot of different ways throughout your life. It can be, you know, 
rough and tumble, like playing around outside, tossing a frisbee. It can be sitting down and playing a board game or a computer game. It can be all sorts of different things, but it's it's what you're doing purely because you want to and not because you have to. Yeah, I, that's a great way of looking at it. So if I think of something like um, running, I don't think of that as play because there's like a, an outcome I'm trying to get. I'm trying to stay in shape. I'm trying to like get faster at running. I like hate running and love running and all that kind of stuff. So running within the way that you're looking at it wouldn't really be play. But when I play video games, and so, you know, as our, our listeners know, I'm, I'm in my mid 40s and I have increasingly less time to do things. But once in a while, I like to like sit down and play like what is now an old game. Like I like to play Bioshock and Bioshock 1 and 2. And it literally does not add, I don't get anything out of it except for just being in the moment and really liking playing Bioshock. So yeah. that would fall within your definition of play, right? I think so. And I think there is some gray area. You know, if you think about things that are giving you benefits, they can still be translated into that world of play. So if I think of some of my hobbies where, sure, I'm gaining something, like when I'm learning Spanish or I'm learning piano, they're definitely a chore. However, there's all these new implementations and technologies that are using gamification to engage. So I know with running, you know, there's an app where you're being chased by zombies and that motivates your run. So like if that makes you feel playful, then like, yeah, exercise can totally be play. Even though you're deriving a benefit, doesn't mean it's not play. But to engage in something because it brings you pleasure, that classifies it for me. Okay. I think that's a really neat, neat way of looking at it. I also like that app. Uh, I have drifted off on my running. I got a, I got a couple injuries uh, late last year and I've been, I've been kind of like going off on my running and trying to get back into it. So maybe I got the zombie app and uh, that will get me some panic running going. So I, I dig that. All right. So how our relationship with play is, it's got to change over time. So for example, I have a, a daughter, she's almost three now and she's all about play. Literally yesterday as a total sidebar, she went on a real tear trying to eat Play-Doh. And like, I was like, oh, don't eat the Play-Doh. And she like, me saying don't eat the Play-Doh was like translated to eat. Yeah, it was like, eat all of the Play-Doh as much as you can before dad stops you. And she was just grabbing Play-Doh and smashing it into her mouth. And I was, I realized how quick and strong my daughter was in like a 30 second window. So it was, it was both horrifying and awesome. Um, but I've already seen how play has changed and like she's super engaged in play now, whereas before it was just someone had to be playing with her, but now she can play on her own. And then, of course, we change with play as we get older. So from your perspective, how does our relationship with play change as we get older? Yeah. So, you know, when you're a kid, it's super easy because everything around you is encouraging you to play. You're playing naturally as you're exploring your environment and testing boundaries. It's part of human development. but then. You know, your family's encouraging you to play. Your teachers are encouraging you to play. Your friends are encouraging you to play. You're sitting in front of, you know, cartoons that are encouraging you to play. Everything in your sphere of influence is, like, giving you that motivation to go out and have fun. But as you grow up, you know, you start to get serious. And everyone around you is telling you not to play and to focus on, you know real things that matter and we we suffer because of that um play is really powerful in a lot of ways and when you start to lose it life gets a lot harder so if you think about sleep deprivation or food deprivation you know everything gets harder you can get more aggressive you can have sort of a listlessness a lack of creativity uh, you can develop a temper that is kind of the same if you're not playing you you become afraid to be silly and because of that you know you lose a lot of the drive that just came naturally when you were younger so that big societal push to to grow up and be serious really affects people in a big way yeah that's such a great uh, such a great takeaway I, I it makes me think of when i was this kid growing up i was friends with this guy john and john like when we all became teenagers and you get your first job, John re refused to get a job. And he was this like consummate mooch. He was always mooching off of everybody. Like he never, he never had any, like, you know, it's like always like, if we're going to go out to dinner, who's paying for John? Like all the stuff when you're a teenager. And we as a group kind of got like fed up. And one day someone was like, dude, why don't you just get a job? Like, so we were like 16, 17 in that area. It's like, why don't you just get a job? And he said something I will never forget. He's like, 
Because once you get your first job, you never stop working until you retire. And I'm trying to delay that because I want to stay. I want to stay young. And I remember as a kid, like eating a bag of chips that he kept sticking his hand into eating, like eating my chips. But I was like, damn, that's like really profound. It's true. Once you start, you don't stop working. And that idea that like that loss of that freedom of just like existing and playing and being in that space. So out of, out of just like for, for our audience, and really I'm super interested, what even got you into this industry? Pure luck. Uh, <laughs> I had relocated uh, from the Pacific Northwest back to New England where I grew up and, you know, looking for random jobs on Craigslist. I found one that advertised this like cool up and coming company that was making toys and they said they had dogs in their office, which I was like, oh, cool, man. Like, I'll apply to that. And I started with this toy company and I realized like, oh, wow, while they're having fun all the time, they're also super professional about this. And, you know, I was with that company for about four years. And in that time span, I started to learn a lot more of the benefits of what we were doing. And I, I just I kept referencing back to my professional history in education. And I worked for the government for a while and everything I had done up to that point it never felt fulfilling in the same way as working in toys because ultimately at the end of the day, like I was making people happy. And so no matter how stressed out I was in the process of, of making that happen, you know, I would still see pictures of kids playing with my toys. I would see families like sitting down together to make robots. And it just felt like a really positive contribution. And from there, you know, it expanded out into gaming, and that was a whole nother revelation for me. And so it, it was a really good stroke of uh, good fortune that brought me into the industry, and I kind of never looked back from there. Mm -hmm. And how many years has it been now? It's been almost a decade combined between toys and games. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's really hard to imagine leaving at this point. Yeah. So as a question, how would you, from a comparison... Like, how would you compare working in, like, kind of, quote-unquote, like, normal jobs? What you experienced before, like, education, working in government, versus working in the industry that you're in now, inclusive from toys to, to tabletop gaming? Yeah, so I think that there, there are a lot of similarities in that there's so much more work beneath the surface than you imagine. A lot of people think, you know, oh, you must have this super cool creative environment where you're just sitting around laughing all the time. But if you actually look, you know, behind the curtain and see what it takes to go into creating this product, this piece of art, this experience for somebody, there are huge teams of people who are all busting their butts to really, like, make this happen. And so I think the biggest similarity is that it is very hard work. And in order to get a quality product, a quality experience, you have to really care and you have to be able to work with, with teams of people who all share the same vision. And so, you know, that core component, I think I was very well prepared working in a lot of other industries. Um, but then having the, the desire to care about play, to care about bringing people together and to having you know, fun experiences with others. That's just the cherry on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I think a lot, like, as you're, you're talking about this idea that as we get a little bit older, we're, we get this message, these messages to be really serious. And both you and I came up in, you know, kind of like the punk hardcore scenes. And I remember leaving my first job as a therapist to go tour with my hardcore band and, like, go do that full time. And ever since I was a kid, I was, like, you know, really into skateboarding, and then I got into punk and all that. And I was getting messages left, right, and center. Like, oh my God, like, stop doing that. You're going to be a failure at life. You're not going to make any money. And I realized, like, that was actually coming from a place of care. Like, you know, it's, I think it's pretty practical to, to want to make sure that your child or a student in your school has, is really thinking towards the future. But I remember, like, a lot of, like, shaming. Like, why are you part of this childish thing, like skateboarding or playing in your punk band? So when I made the leap to leaving my first job as a therapist to go like tour with my band, it was a huge thing. I got like tons of shit from my family. Like everyone was like, what a nightmare. But I can tell you that unless I did that, I wouldn't be doing this. There's no way I would have had the guts and, and kind of like the wherewithal to start my own company and build it up. So 
from your perspective, is there a value in play that goes beyond just the enjoyment of the moment? Is there something that actually is a practical application to our lives as, as like professionals? Absolutely. So if you, if you start to think about the pressures that are put on us as professionals, a lot of things that we need to bring into the workplace are benefits that you can only reap if you're making time and making space in your life to, to tap into that other, that other half of your brain, that, that relaxation and that creativity. It's escapism in, at its core. You know, if you are experiencing a lot of stress, if you're experiencing high pressure environments, deadlines, um, it's not sustainable in the long run. And so if you're not allowing yourself a way to decompress from that, a way to step away and really just allow your, your body and your brain to, to be somewhere else, you're never going to reach your full potential in the professional environment that you're working in. And so, you know, you see it a lot in all of these analysis of these big successful CEOs and what their daily routines are, you know, they're not just working constantly around the clock. They're starting their day, they're getting in that exercise, they're, they're making time to go, you know, play racquetball or, or whatever. They're, they're segmenting their lives in a way that allows them to recharge their batteries. Um, and kind of akin to what you were saying when you were talking about, you know, the guilt and the shame that you were getting as you were going off to, to leave that real life job and, and play. Uh, I was reading a book recently, and one of the things that the author said was that if you forget how to have fun, it becomes really hard to remember. And yeah. that, to me, was like, that was my John moment where I was like, holy moly, this is super profound. Like, this is what has happened to so many people that I know that feel unfulfilled right now, that feel unhappy it's because they are trying so hard to make ends meet and so hard to be that professional and to be serious and to take care of all these responsibilities and deal with just the world at large that they don't remember what it was like to make time for themselves, to make themselves happy. And there are those elements of guilt and shame if you make time for yourself, you know, that's, it feels selfish. That is such a, that is like a huge, when you said that, like you can see my face, but the audience can't. And I was like, holy crap, like that, that is yeah. really profound. Um, would you mind if I, if I kind of bring in an, uh, an example from my own life? Please. Um, so not my job now, but my job before that. I had joined this company and I was playing in like punk bands and playing in punk bands has always, always been my play. Well, not always, but ever since I got into it, it's, that's play for me. I love writing a song. I love like just getting together with my friends and being in the jam space and like bullshitting and joking around just that feeling of being in the creative space. I remember when I joined this company, really like playing in bands trailed off for me massively. And I didn't do it really at all for a couple of years. And I was super focused on my career. And there were benefits to that for sure. But I remember like I'd gotten to a place where I was a vice president and I had this like big office, downtown Vancouver, huge view of the, of the harbor. You know, people would come in and be like, really like, whoa, like this is pretty wild that you have this. I've probably never been as miserable in my entire life because like I had a big job, big title, you know, all of the benefits that go along with that. And I was like truly unhappy. And I would say like so unhappy. And one of the reasons why was I'd forgotten how to play. I wasn't doing anything. Like I wasn't even doing anything like running or cycling or anything. I was just working and then going home and worrying about work and wor like worrying all the time and getting back into playing music, kind of finding my space with that. Like it was a huge benefit. And it was really actually what it enabled me to like be able to set myself up for doing cadence now was like really realizing the success that I got at work was so hollow. Working in that company required that I gave up who I was. And it really made me plug back into who I was, which had a huge amount to do with play, which is why I was so excited to talk to you about this topic. Well, yeah. And if you think about just the times that we're in right now and what's going on in the world, you know, collectively, I feel like the people who are in a workplace right now have taken on so much extra work over the course of the last year, just as, you know, headcounts are being reduced at companies everywhere to save money because of the impact of the pandemic, 
Um, everybody is taking on a lot of extra work because everyone's concerned about job securities. They're not pushing back. They're, they're accepting that workload because there's this pressure. There's this fear that if you don't go above and beyond, you know, you could be next. And so, you know, that is really snowballing. Everyone's working longer hours. Spending time making up for all the time spent in meetings during the day because everyone's having to learn to communicate in new ways. And so, you know, that's, it's not even considering the pressures that are placed on parents who are, they have their kids home all the time now with no breaks. They're homeschooling. They're, you know, they're doing all these things and there just doesn't feel like there's time for anything else. There's, there's no time for fun when you feel like you have to be serious in order to survive. And, yeah. and that's, that's a super hard thing to manage right now, especially. Well, totally. And, and I also, I'm interested in your, on your perspective of like, we're in such a wild time, like really tumultuous time in history where there's so much super important social change going on. And of course, like everything with the election that, that happened and huge rise of what we could say is like real recognition of serious continuing to exist problems within our society with like sexism, racism, like the way that our economy works, um, you know, just general prejudice real barriers that we have to having like a, a, a society that functions in like a really proper way. Has our perception of fun and whether or not we should have fun, has that changed? I think so, for sure. I mean, as I, as I touched upon before, like there are real feelings of shame and real feelings of guilt associated with making time for yourself. Mm. And I think that even among this like sort of wave of, you know, self-care conversations, a lot of that is very surface level. A lot of that is like, oh, treat yourself, go, go buy something, go, you know, do a face mask. And it's, it's not giving yourself the gift of time, the gift of stress release, the gift of using your imagination. Um, and, you know, all of those things, they make you feel young they they bring back that spirit they allow you to decompress and separate yourself from the real world which if you're immersed in that all the time like it's gonna beat you down and so you know in order to heal in order to process there's so much trauma just coming at everyone constantly now and if you're not allowing yourself that space to really take care of yourself and handle it in a healthy way, you're gonna just form a defense mechanism that will make you numb, it'll make you just desensitized, and, and you're not gonna deal with anything that's happening in a productive way, and that's gonna stall progress worldwide as a society. And so, you know, it's a larger issue, and I think that in order to really take care of each other we have to take care of ourselves and a way to do that is to just allow yourself the time the space to decompress to evolve you know totally and i i love what you just said about um around the surface level of some of the self-care stuff and like please everyone hear this with a grain of salt because it's not intended as a as an insult but so many people are just share kind of blindly like self-care tips, like, whoa, self-care, self-care. You know, it's like all over social media. It's like, yeah, that's, that's cool. But like, it seems so surface level. Like the idea of play to me is like really compelling. Like I hadn't thought of it this way until we had started having this conversation. And as we're speaking, I'm like, damn, this is like really impactful. I also like uh, uh, very much what you're saying around that. Like you got to make time for yourself, but like, we're not just being vague about it. Like, the idea that making time for yourself to do something like play that just might seem a little bit like self-indulgent is actually super important. And if you think about getting, when you get on an airplane, like back when we could do that, and you would get the flight attempts would give you the pre-flight conversation and they'd say, hey, if masks come down, put your mask on first. It's not because airlines are like saying like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, every person for themselves. Let's get into like a huge like Donnybrook. Instead, what they're saying is, by taking care of yourself first, you're better able to help other people. If you try and help people first without putting on your own mask, you're going to go down and that's creating a greater burden for the system of the flight. And it's that kind of thinking of it seems self-indulgent to make time for play, but actually by making time for play, you're being quite selfless. Yeah, 
and I, I, I will say, I also subscribe to all the surface level self-care. Like, please, I'm not hating. I have every face mask on the planet, and I love all those things. But, yeah, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head there. And, you know, something maybe more specific to board gaming, because that's what I'm most familiar with, is that when you're playing in another world, you're essentially learning how to be out of control in a safe space. Mm. And you're experiencing how to lose. You're experiencing ups and downs. And being able to do that in an environment where it doesn't necessarily have real-world consequences is going to build up that competency within yourself so that when you're in the real world and have to face something tough, you've developed that skill set. For you, is that is that the role that escapism has in our lives, like being able to do that? For sure. I, I think that, you know, everybody needs to be able to step away. Everybody needs the chance to express themselves in a place that is formatted to allow them to do that safely. So if you look at, you know, applications of role-playing games in, in therapeutic environments, this is this is a huge thing where if someone can't express themselves in their real world, they can create a character in an RPG that then embodies like who they wish they could be, or that is living out their traumas and experiencing things that are hard for them to talk about in real life because it's not you. It doesn't feel like you. It's this character instead, and so it's easier to process. And so I think for sure escapism, whether it's playing a game, whether it's, you know, going out and, and joining a bunch of pals to do something creative, it, it does give you the opportunity to live your life in a safer space, even temporarily, that it, it creates that pressure release valve to allow you to, to deal with the pressures of real life in a more competent way. Yeah, it's funny as you say that, like creating these characters, because like I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and I played D&D. Also, like I played Dungeons and Dragons and like, like these kinds of games when I was younger and was really into them and then got embarrassed as I got older and felt like I was supposed to stop playing them. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And I let go of a piece of my youth. And when some of my friends who were in my age uh, bracket started playing D&D, like uh, Trey McCarthy, I was like, mm -hmm. on one level, I was like, really? Like, are you kidding? Like, you're a grown adult. You're doing this. But on a much deeper level, I was like, oh. Could I do? Am I? Do I have the guts to do that? Like, do I actually have the courage to do what Trey's doing? And honestly, the answer was no. Like, I was like, ah, uh, you know, like I don't know if it, I, it might be weird if I start doing that. And I actually like, I like Dungeons and Dragons, but there's this weird like, oh, I shouldn't do that at 46. And how wild is that? That you kind of get shamed out of these ideas that that's just only for a certain age group when it's just this like wonderful tool. And it's so funny because when I was preparing for my very first D&D &D campaign, which was not as a kid, it was as an adult, I reached out to Trey because I was super embarrassed about it. I was like, I can't like act in front of people. This is making me feel like I'm all sweaty and like I, I just can't do this. And, you know, he talked me through it and we tried it and I discovered that I still don't particularly love role playing in front of folks. However. I love organizing role play spaces for other people. And so for me, the play is it's developing the characters, it's developing the settings, the stories, and providing that opportunity for other people who want to go and be in character. And so I definitely understand that there are levels of shame from the outside world. There are these levels of shame clearly within us. Like, what is preventing me from being silly, like, in front of a safe group of friends? Like, that is completely self-imposed, like, shame. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's everywhere. It really is. Yeah, and, you know, it's just such a, like, as we're getting more into this, I'm, like, really reflecting. Like, when you'd said, like, characters being, like, being able to live out things that we wish we like ways we could be or, or things we could address. It's like, yeah, I remember my characters when I was a kid really making them wish how I, I would make them how I wished the world would view me or what I wanted to be like or what I felt I wasn't. And it's such an interesting thing to be able to like adopt that. And I also remember like when your character dies in a game, like as a kid, I was like, oh, 
my God, because it literally felt like a part of you is dying. Like that's a really powerful thing that I think people, probably a lot of people are missing in their lives. Yeah. And it allows you the chance to understand what that feels like to lose something that's important to you. So then in real life, when it happens, you're like, it's okay. I've done this before. And, you know, even though it was a game, it meant this much to me. And this is how I handled it. And now I'm better equipped to do it again. Um, So it all comes full circle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's beautifully said. I, I really, I love that idea. So we've we've touched on it, and you have been pretty specific. But I'd really like to hear from you. Like, what do you believe are the psychological and even physical benefits of play? Yeah. So you know, there are numerous studies out there on this topic. If if people are interested, but at a very base level, playing releases a chemical response in your body. It, it triggers endorphins, it counteracts cortisol, which like we have no shortage of in these stressful times. Um, and you can really, you can tap into deeper senses of, or deeper levels rather of relaxation after you've played because of that chemical release that has happened. Uh, it can enhance and even heal relationships because the people around you that you're playing with, you're you're building trust, you're boosting communication skills, you're building confidence within yourself to make decisions. And so it it really helps you a lot socially as well as physically. Um, And on a, on a practical level, you're developing skill sets. Every time you play, you're, you're learning better pattern recognition, uh, information processing, problem solving. You in some cases are working how to cooperate with a team with other people that might have different ideas that you have you're developing strategies you're using your imagination like i can go on and on and on but really there's not a whole lot that's bad about play for you in the sense of your physical and mental well-being yeah you know and as you say that again i'm thinking of these like dire messages i got when i was a kid it's like oh you know being into that you're going to become one of those people that's like you're in some someone's basement playing D D when you're 40 and it's like the same could be said about anything like you get too much into anything and you're going to become like x extrapolated horrible version of it but like culturally like we think of things like drugs and alcohol which is like well specifically alcohol and cigarettes they get peddled to us like you know, like all the time, like, oh, get into this. This is what relaxation looks like when you're an adult. You should do this and don't do this, like play games, like be in this play space. But an adult thing is like drinking, smoking, like being in the party scene. And it seems like that's fine too, because when you think about it, well, the extrapolated version is maybe you form an addiction, you get into an unhealthy lifestyle. But it may be like the assumption of like, Actually, there are a lot of good options for people and we should just be encouraging people to like go out and like keep this part of their lives intact, whether it's playing D&D or whether it's going out and partying or whatever it is, with the assumption that people will probably find a healthy center as long as they're encouraged to continue up that playful lifestyle. Yeah, and I mean, it's a little goes a long way. And if you think of playing as like eating vegetables, you know, I ate a vegetable today cool, that's good for you. If you eat more vegetables, that's better for you. You know, at a certain point, if all you're eating is that vegetable, probably not that good for you, little too much, but it's about striking that balance. And it's a really apt comparison because I think people don't realize until they have a little bit more and and get more into something that they start to realize increased benefits. Totally. And that assumption that someone does something, it's automatically going to go to the worst, most polarized version is like, I mean, yes, that's going to happen for some people, but it's going to happen for a very small amount of people. And like moving away from these like really like catastrophizing ideas of like, oh, if you start playing, you're going to like, you know, it's all you're going to do. It's like, that's just, that's just not true. And in fact, it seems to be this thing that a lot of people have lost due to tons of really maladaptive social pressure and especially like getting pushed into the idea that like drinking or, or going to bars or whatever is like, that's what you should do when you hit a certain point instead of play. It was a real issue for me, obviously because of my background with uh, addiction myself and in that space, but also just like, that's part of why I love the idea of like straight edge. But I will say there is a whole flip side where like we can see where a, a, a culture where it gets 
too much focused on just being in that culture, like punk and hardcore, can be actually quite toxic in and of itself, which is a separate conversation. And I don't want to go down right now because I do want to focus more on your, on your career. So tell us about your job today and what does it look like day to day for you? Yeah, so it's interesting because I am just starting at a new company. Uh, I'm starting at a company called Roll20. And one of the big missions of this whole company is that they want to empower people to be able to play while breaking down some of the accessibility barriers that exist. Uh, and so they provide a virtual tabletop experience that is browser based and free to use so that, you know, if you and I wanted to start up our own D&D game, we don't have to be in the same room. We don't have to be in the same time zone even. We have the tools in front of us to be able to create that adventure together as a shared experience. Mm -hmm. And for somebody that might not have their Jamie there around to sit down and play with, there's a whole community building aspect to the tool that allows you to go out and find other people who are looking for game groups who don't have anyone who will onboard you, who will teach you exactly how to do what you want to do. And so I'm, I'm going to be joining that team and helping them develop that community and um, working with a lot of the creators within that space who are, who are making the maps and the characters and a lot of the art that's focused in those adventures to really take them from, from something in our imaginations into the real world. Uh, I love that. So there seems to be like a, and also congratulations on the new role. That sounds super cool. Thank you. Um, there seems to have been in the past, like, I'd say like 10-ish years, a lot more conversation and talk about like tabletop games. Like I, I seriously had not thought about any of this stuff for so long until, you know, again, a mutual friend, Trey, started talking about it. And I had that little kind of like jam of like, God, like, man, maybe I want to do this again. And it, it does seem like tabletop gaming has become a bigger conversation uh, in, in the world. And so, and like, it seems like there's a rise in popularity. Is that just perception or is it actually starting to become more popular again? Oh, it's, it's absolutely experiencing a surge. And, you know, I think that it can be hard to believe for a lot of folks because their experience growing up is limited to, you know, the certain types of games that were available. You know, you'd sit around, you'd play your Monopoly, your life. Um, and, you know, some of those experiences are negative because either the games weren't taught right or it was a stressed out like family situation with a lot of tension. And so, you know, those games were very formative in a lot of ways for, for a lot of us who still play games today because it was our first taste. But the actual content, the games themselves have evolved so much mm. in the last several decades, you know. I can sit down and play a game about bird watching if I want to. I can cooperatively stop a worldwide pandemic from spreading across countries with my team of researchers and doctors. Like, you can work together to fight a demon, you know. There's all these new applications and settings and stories that have evolved that really, I think, once people get a taste of that and realize, like, this isn't the game I grew up with, it's it's a rabbit hole, man. When I when I first started getting into games, I think I bought close to four hundred games the first year I was learning about it. Because there's just, there's so much out there. There's Whoa. so much to discover, and like you want it all. Well, okay. So with that in mind, it sounds like things are changing. And something that was really compelling that Patrick brought up as we were talking about your show was around how the ideas of like how a game works from a perspective of how we want society maybe to, to reform is changing. So can you share with us, like what are some of the limitations that the tabletop game uh, gaming industry is currently facing and how can those be overcome? Yeah. So I think, you know, the obvious answer given our time and circumstances is that we haven't had the ability to gather safely uh, for a little over a year now. Uh, and the, the gaming community as a whole, it's built upon, you know, game nights with friends and stores, events that they're putting together for their communities that they foster and these massive conventions, you know. This is the first year that I haven't been in a new state every month at a convention of anywhere from 
3,000 to 70,000 people who just wanted to have fun. And to take that away has really impacted folks because it's like they almost don't know what to do with themselves. That was such a, such a part of their existence. And so accessibility and adapting a very analog mindset into a digital application is certainly a barrier that people are facing right now. And, you know, knock on wood, hopefully things are going to start to get better soon so that we can be in the same room with the people we want to play with again. But I think even, even outside of that and before the pandemic, there are a lot of accessibility barriers. You know, not everybody has a community that they can tap into. Not everybody has friends that they can play with. Not everybody has the money to go out and like buy a game to play or a safe place where they can sit down and play it. And so our industry has a lot of work to do as far as outreach and something that can sort of stifle that effort is the fear of what happens when you take this, this really precious niche community and expose a bunch of new folks to it in the same way that there's a high level of gatekeeping in punk and hardcore and this exclusionary like, I don't want new people to come in here. This is my space and it's been this way and it'll change. Like that same resistance is very, very evident in the gaming community. And um, although I will say the gaming community has been much friendlier to me than punk and hardcore ever was, you know, I still face a lot of resistance just from being a woman. When I sit down at a table, even when I'm teaching a game at a table, I am constantly mansplained, you know, well, no, this is the ruler. This is what you should do on your turn. It's just like, ugh. you know, asked, uh, can I speak to, to your manager when I am the manager constantly? Um, a lot of these little silly things are, are happening on a on a grand scale within the gaming community, and I think that they can certainly stand to improve. Um, and and in that same vein, you know, there's a wild racial disparity. Uh, if I sit in a room of 3,000 gamers, I'll look around and probably be able to count on my hands the people of color that are in the in the room with me, and. It's a problem that has been brought to light a lot more recently. These conversations are starting to happen, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that folks with good intentions are going to do what they can to change that. Uh, but it's, it's certainly a, a community conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. And I'm also interested in like what the games are about and how that's changing. Because you'd mentioned like, you, know, you can have a game about like, birdwatching or a game about stopping a pandemic. So when I think of like some of these initial games, I'm thinking about things like Risk or I'm thinking mm-hmm. about things like Monopoly, which is about like getting things and like hoarding them, you know, and then of course, like more modern games like Settlers of Catan that like occupying space. And, you know, I know they're just games, but they do seem to be based on kind of like traditional tropes of like taking from others and like hoarding for yourself. So are you seeing any shift in that as well? Absolutely. So there is a huge correlation in the sort of first wave of of gaming inventors and designers who were these like white dudes um and like the games about colonialism that they created <laughs> and if you look at a lot of the really popular like evergreen games from years past you know a lot of them are based on colonialism a lot of them are based on you know, some really sketchy topics. Some of them have slave trading in them. And, you know, there's always this argument of, well, it's historical. And it's like, sure. However, what can we do to change this? What can we do to bring in a modern take and modern influences? And so something you're seeing as more people are introduced to this hobby, as more people are being empowered to come and tell their own stories by creating their own games, you're starting to see diversity in what the actual games are. You know, I mentioned before a game about birdwatching. Like, this is a perspective that was brought into the community by someone who hadn't made a game before, who who taught us, you know, this is something that I'm passionate about. Um, I have a friend who's a designer named Omari who has 
a series of games that he's bringing into the community about rap music, about basketball, and he's bringing his perspective as one of the very, very few black designers that are coming up in the industry right now that, you know, they're, they're telling a story from a perspective that's not often heard in the space, and they're leading by example, because that's then going to empower other people to say, oh, hey, just because something didn't exist before for me, or that tells my story, that doesn't mean that I can't be the one to go and make that happen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's such an interesting idea when you have different voices, uh, different perspectives brought into something. Not only does it help you see the cracks in what exists, because you know when you have like an echo chamber and everyone's kind of the same, you actually just might not see the gaps in what you've done. Like you might not see the cracks because everyone just has the same life experience and the same approaches to things. You bring in different eyes, different perspectives, different backgrounds. It helps you can see that the limitations of what you have and the issues with what you have. But also it allows you to like engage in things that you would never have created. And like I, I just know like there's just types of games or types of music or types of art that I would never be able to create just based on my own perspective. I would need other people with their perspectives to like stretch my thinking and bring me into a world of the possible. So I think that's um, truly uh, like a really, really powerful thing that's happening in your industry. So as we're heading to the close of this episode, is there anything you want to share with our audience about what you've learned as your experience as a leader in this industry? So is there anything that you could say like personally or professionally you've really taken away from being a leader in this specific industry? Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned within the gaming space specifically has been um, the impact of putting myself outside of my comfort zone socially. Uh, I'm not the type of person to ever approach a stranger within a room or be the center of attention, but I've learned throughout the process of, of sitting down and sharing games and sharing experiences with people, whether I'm teaching them or experiencing them, that I'm getting to connect with humans in a way that I never would have imagined. I'm getting to connect with types of people that I would have never spoken to otherwise. I would have never known their experiences, their cultures, their, you know, perspectives on important topics that I think, as you were saying, talking about these echo chambers, you know, we seek out people who are like ourselves in a lot of ways. And gaming is is strange because it's a very cool shared interest that allows for a wide spectrum of types of people to like it, if that makes sense. It's, I've, I've learned to not judge people as much based on this thing that we have in common and to, to really enjoy the power that playing with other people gives me to connect with folks on a, on a human level. Um, and I've also learned, you know, more professionally than like a, a personal social benefit, the power that this decompression has over myself in, in my life when I'm working too hard, you know, I know exactly what the remedy can be now that I've had this escapism, that I've had this channel to tap into to take care of myself. And I've shared it with as many people as I can because I, I really do believe in it. And so I'd say that those are the two biggest. All right, that's perfect. And final question for you. Is there anything you want to share with the audience around the power of play? Anything that you say is like, here's like my takeaway that I'd really like you to think about around how important play is in our personal and professional lives. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're struggling, if you're finding yourself either in your personal life or your professional life feeling stuck or feeling like you don't have a whole lot to look forward to, uh, make yourself take time. Make yourself step out of your comfort zone and do something just because it makes you happy. And if you don't know what that is, just think back to things that you used to do and either do them again or figure out a modern, you know, iteration of what could give you that same feeling and try it a few times and see how you feel. And if it doesn't make you feel better, if it doesn't at least scratch the itch enough to make you want to prioritize yourself a little bit more, then I don't know, I guess write me a mean letter or something, but I'm pretty sure it'll make you feel better and, you know, share that message with others because we get to look out for one another. Right on. 
Well, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this was an incredible conversation, and I knew it was going to be cool. Uh, it went to a lot of places I, I wasn't expecting, and it actually like made me think a lot about where I get my, my joy, like every day, every week, every month, every year. And uh, I think there's some really, well, not think, there are some really, really valuable takeaways for our audience, but also for me. So thank you so much for your time. And as we're closing off, I encourage everyone to stick around for the outro. I'm going to wrap up some of our ideas. So Jamie, thanks one more time. And Dave, drop the beat. That was awesome. So thank you so much, Jamie. Uh, that conversation really opened up a lot of thinking for me and reminded me like there's stuff that I just loved to do when I was a kid that I really just stopped doing because I felt like, oh, you know, that's not what an adult does. And really like those avenues of play and just doing something because you love to do it can seem so self-indulgent, but that's actually okay if done in a healthy way. So lots of great, great takeaways for me personally. And I believe that, you know, you as the audience, I'm sure you had some great stuff too. So with that, I want to encourage everyone who you are as a person today is an amalgamation of who you are now and who you have been. And both of those are going to inform who you're going to be. Why deprive yourself of some of the simple joys of life? And one of those simple joys of life can just be a little bit of fun indulging in enjoying something just because you enjoy doing it. And I know we're in this really, really, really scary time, serious time. There's a lot of serious conversations. But I'll tell you, if 24 hours a day, seven days a week, all you are is serious and totally focused on these like big, heavy conversations, probably part of you is going to wither up a bit. So yeah, you do need to invest in taking care of yourself. And a great way to do that is investing in play. So with that, as we're closing off, I want to remind everyone that we are produced by Patrick McKechnie. We're edited by Dave Larson and our design is done by Tammy Levy. Once again, I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this has been One Step Beyond.